We are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. This is the second part of a two part episode. To hear part one, listen to last week's episode and then come back for this one. And you uh, spent some time in jail too for protests as well, right? Yeah, not nearly as much as Dan Berrigan. I remember Dan Berrigan was once asked how often he'd been in prison, and his answer was not enough. <laughs> <laughs> and mine is certainly that, plus times 100. I'm, I've only been in prison half a dozen times or so. I, but I was in prison for just over a year for burning draft records. That was the, mo- the only really substantial. Well, there was a month in prison also in New York City. That was that was you know also important experience the rest of it just been a night in jail or you know something like that were those times for you transformative sure both of them i mean i'm only thinking thinking about the tour that were the week well one was about a month i guess and the other one was 13 months Mm -hmm. i think it's a it's a kind of privilege to have the experience of being in prison. I mean, I lived in communities where there were a lot of people who were in and out of prison. Mm. But to actually live with prisoners in a prison is uh, a great learning opportunity. It's one of the works of mercy. You know, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was in prison mm. and you came to visit me. Dorothy Day always pointed out that if you want to visit the prison, there's nothing like moving in with a prisoner. she did also move in with a prisoner from time to time in my case because i'm literate prisoners who are not particularly literate or or even illiterate would ask me to to write letters for them to type letters for them i had a typewriter in the prison that i was in for 13 months so you find there are many important things you can do to help people of course, it's definitely not something I'd recommend for everybody. There's, there's a lot of challenges in prison. And not every, I think having my monastic side helped me in that case. Having wanted it earlier in my life to be a monk and having a, a feeling of monastic connection made, me, made it possible to see prison as a kind of monastic environment. Not the best kind of monastery, God knows, but anyway, a place where you're living a very uh, clock-oriented Unfortunately, not a bell-oriented life. No bells to mark the time, but anyway, where you're always aware of what's happening and when it's happening. It's all extremely scheduled life. The the slamming doors, for sure. I I remember working when I was working as a therapist. I had a stint where I was working in our local jail with clients, and the sounds, the doors, something I will never forget. Yeah. I was in a cell block for about six months. It was just like out of a James Cagney 1930s, 1940s movie. Even though the world is theoretically in color, it's a black and white world, just metal and gray walls and bars. And, uh, I had 14 bars on my cell, which was the standard number. <laughs> I thought, well, having been part of the Milwaukee 14, 14 was just about the right number. 
<laughs> a year or so ago, we interviewed a woman on this podcast named Jane Brocks, who wrote a book about how prisons, I guess there was a period of time where prisons were very much supposedly modeled after monasteries. I think even the word penitentiary oh, is right. related yeah, a, to those, repentance. One of the signers of the Declaration of Independence had that concept. But she pointed out how it was really almost taking the worst qualities of penitential monasticism and really leaving out the emphasis on community or the emphasis on relationship, those kinds of things. So it's a fascinating. Yeah, I've, read, I've read the book and I've, I've corresponded with her. I, I'm a great admirer of her writing. Yeah. And the penitentiaries were unfortunately designed in such a way as to drive a person crazy, not penitent. Yeah. You've already mentioned in our discussion here, uh, Henry Nouwen and how uh, even Hillary Clinton was a fan and you said that's probably not going to win her any points you know, or, or many votes. I, I'm kind of curious as to, we've had a couple guests come on and who knew Nowen or worked with Nowen and they mentioned some various things. I was curious as, as to um, any particular thing that sticks out for you about Henry, what Henry has taught you in this journey on peace and love and and and, and companionship and, and the silence. And I know that you're very fond of iconography. And my understanding is that Henry is one who helped introduce that for you, right? Yeah, Henry Henry gave Nancy and me an, a beautiful reproduction of Rublyov's Holy Trinity icon, the three angels sitting around the altar-like table. Everybody probably knows which one I'm talking about. And Henry gave us, had, 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 had been in Paris that morning and, and had bought this print at a little shop next to the Jesuit church brought it up to our house and said, I, you know, this is my, my wedding gift. And the main thing wasn't so much the icon reproduction itself as his explaining it to us, you know, sitting down and going, what is this? Why, why are there no doors on this building? Why, why is there a tree on top of this hill? You know, why is, why is the table shaped the way it is? And, you know, little by little unpeeling the icon, opening our eyes to really see the, the unity of the figures, the, the way in which there's a kind of trinity in a circle at the same time, uh, to look at the architecture of the icon, all that stuff. I mean, eventually I would get to actually stand in front of Rubioff's icon in Moscow and see it in a way that can't be photographed. But it was a very important experience, Henry giving that gift to us. And we still have not that particular icon, we have a hand-painted version of it. And, uh, on a icon show. Mm -mm. And that gift that Henry had that ability to be able to add that academic piece, that intellectual piece, but then how deeply pastoral, psychological, spiritual it was. Very intimate, very pastoral, very unguarded. You know, he you entered into his enthusiasm. His hands were flying around like angel wings. And that was... Uh, it was always an experience to be with Henry explaining something. I remember I was staying with him in New Haven during a very difficult time in my life. My, my former marriage had collapsed. I, I was in a deeply depressed condition. Henry invited me to come and stay with him for a while, provided an airplane ticket to fly across the Atlantic to be in New Haven. Walking over to the art museum, I can't remember what the name of it is at Yale, but 
Henry's showing me this Van Gogh painting of uh, inside a cafe in Arles. I think it was Arles. And just in the most unhurried way, looking at every detail of the painting as if he'd never seen it before. Of course, he'd seen it a hundred times, but it was still brand new. It was, a, it, was a, it was a great privilege to be present when he did that. It was part of his therapy for me, because I definitely was in desperate need of therapy. <laughs> and Jim, you've, you've taken on that teaching and pastoral role in terms of, I mean, you wrote the book, Praying with Icons. Yeah. Would you say that was kind of the beginning of, of your journey with icons that led to writing that book? Well, when you start thinking about roots, they go they go deeper than you think that they reach down, down, down. Remember, Dorothy Day had a great enthusiasm for Eastern Christianity. I didn't quite get it, but I was pulled along by her. Just say she'd say, come here, come and see this. She took me up to a Russian Orthodox church and East 97th Street, I think it was in Manhattan, and introduced me to the priest who was the dean of the cathedral. She took me to Vesper service one evening, an Orthodox Vesper service. She took me with her to a meeting of a group called the Third Hour, which brought Catholics, Orthodox, and Protestants together who were concerned about, had a shared interest in Eastern Christianity. And she basically I mean, all but ordered me to read Dostoevsky. So I think the roots go actually down, begin pretty much at the Catholic worker. But the flowering of the thing was, a lot of it had to do with Henry Nowen. Jim, I'm curious to hear about your journey into Orthodox Christianity. So it all began with a movie. <laughs> no, it began so, with all kinds of things. Yeah. But the turning point was, I was in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, had a lecture to give at the Divinity School, Harvard Divinity School, and I was staying with Robert Ellsberg, who is now the publisher of Orvis Book. At that time, he was editing a collection of Dorothy Day's writings as a kind of sideline to while teaching and studying. And we decided to, one evening to go to the movies together, looked in the Cambridge papers to see what was showing, and saw that there was a Russian movie, Soviet Russian movie, called Moscow Does Not Believe in Tears, we decided to go and see it. It was a it's it's a remarkable film. I still look at it from time to time. Uh, story of uh, three women who meet each other in a dormitory in Moscow, and you follow their lives, their love affairs, their disappointments, very touching struggles to survive, and the friendship that, that carries them along. It's a it's a it's a remarkable movie. It's not at all political, and I realized I knew more about Russian as targets of nuclear war than I knew about Russians as people. And that the peace movement was full of people who were experts on missiles and megatonnage and all that, all the, what World War III would look like, but didn't know hardly a thing about actual people. So I began to think I need to go to Russia and just as a writer, see if I can get to know the Orthodox Church in Russia. And to make a very long story very short, I, eventually at the time, by the time the Gorbachev became head of the state, I was able to get the, the door opened and I was able to spend a couple of years off and on traveling a great deal in Russia. And I was so moved by the liturgy as I began to experience it 
But and my wife came on one of these trips. Nancy and I went together one summer. It opened the door to seeing the Orthodox Church in the West and see what was that what is that like. So we we discovered that in Amsterdam there's a little Orthodox parish that was just as remarkable a place to worship in as any place in Russia. And we began to think, let's go on alternate weeks. We'll sing in the choir of our Catholic choir on the Sundays when our particular choir would be singing, the alternate Sundays. And then on the Sundays between, we'd go to, to, to Amsterdam, but it didn't work out. We just began to realize that we were going to have to center our lives in one church, one parish. And it became the Orthodox Russian Orthodox parish in, in Amsterdam. And then you realize, well, if you're going to be at church there every Sunday, you do want to receive the Eucharist. <laughs> so we were, without leaving the Catholic Church, the, the rector of the church never required us to lay anything behind. We were just received into the Eucharistic community and have been receiving communion there ever since, except the last six months. That's a long, uh, unbelievably compact version of it. I think for me, what was irresistible in the Orthodox, especially in the Russian Orthodox tradition, was the standing prayer, mm. the silence, the fact that when you say the same things every Sunday, it becomes silence. There's no innovation. Every Sunday we sing the Beatitudes. Every Sunday there are various other things we sing. Every Sunday we we recite certain prayers together. Every Sunday we stand and listen to the same prayers being said by the priest or the deacon or whoever. It's always the same thing. And far from being infinitely boring, it becomes infinitely alive. <laughs> I have never heard a more profound description for structured ritualism in my entire life. I'm a Catholic, and I teach Roman Catholic students, especially young ones, and they will say things like, I hate going to Mass because it's boring. We say the same things every Sunday. And what you've just said is, well, because we say the same things, it becomes silence and it becomes infinitely alive. <laughs> <laughs> I think there, I, have, there are many things you could complain about with the Russian Orthodox Church. The list is at least as long as for the Roman Catholic Church or any other church you care to mention. What's wrong with the Orthodox Church? Plenty. But they know how to pray. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Amazing. You know, the musical tradition and the, the tradition of the Jesus prayer and the preparing for the Eucharist, thanking God for the Eucharist, living uh, your life either in thanksgiving for the Eucharist or in preparation for the next Eucharist. Hmm. And knowing that you have to forgive everybody before you receive communion. Boy, that's a challenge. Yeah. This conversation on Encountering Silence will continue after a 30-second break of silence. Take a moment and breathe with us. Kevin, uh, you might appreciate this. Um, 
Brother Aiden at Holy Cross Monastery in West Park, New York, he talks about liturgy as a window onto eternity. And Perfect. I think this, what, 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 what Jim is sharing with us really kind of connects with that in a beautiful, beautiful way. The liturgy really does invite us to think in an entirely different way than kind of the way we're programmed to think. You know, the clue to me, because I, I was always a member of the Masses Boring School, but the clue to me was interfaith work and to become friends with Muslims who pray the same prayers every day, five mm -hmm. times a day, and, prayer, and friends with Buddhists who are chanting the same chants every morning and every evening. And it just, you know, it just got to thinking, well, why, who am I to say this is boring when different cultures all around the world have found spiritual nurture out of this, this same basic behavior? Right. And seem to be and, way uh, ahead of us in terms of living with, with the kind of inner peace that we long for. Yeah, exactly. And I appreciate this conversation very much because Jim makes this connection. And then, Carl, your comment helps me because I, I do so much interreligious work, as you as you know. And, and it's so funny that, yeah, how come I don't make the connection that I, I give great honor to the Buddhist mantras and the Hindu and the the Muslim prayers. And, and then in my own tradition, I, I yeah, eh, yuck, eh. <laughs> yeah, in, in my experience with the Trappist, the, the deepening of sacred repetition opens up into this spaciousness that is just infinite, as you said, Jim. It did surprise me when I realized that basically what it, that liturgy becomes a kind of liturgical silence. When you know everything and you can, even if you don't know a word of church Slavonic, you begin to know it all. After you grow up, the kids grow up with it. They've heard the Beatitudes every, every Sunday mm -hmm. since they were baptized before. It becomes part of you. Mm. Yeah. Jim, where do you see hope today in the world? Well, I, I, lots of places. And we, Nancy and I turn on the news at night, and it's sometimes a kind of uh, not exactly thrilling experience to see the latest thing, latest press conference at the White House. But uh, we see people protesting, and many of them in a very good spirit, many of them in a very creative spirit, mm. have come up with interesting signs, sometimes funny, sometimes moving. You look at people's faces, and you see, yes, of course, they're angry, but they're also planning to have a different future. They're doing what they can to bring it about. They're not riding on a lava flow of hatred. They're riding on a lava flow, call it a wind of, of hope, a determined hope. It's very, I find it very touching. And I, I look at the um, environmental move and, and the struggle that people are making to save endangered animals. Uh, and it gives me great hope. We, Nancy and I watch a lot of these uh, documentaries on wildlife. We recently watched one on Nature Reserve in Cuba. And you see people all over the world who are trying to protect endangered species. Gives me hope. The liturgy gives me hope. You, how could it not? You, you re, you're receiving the life of, of the world in your own body, the, the body of Christ, the body and blood of Christ. How can that not give you hope? Dorothy Day used to say hope is a duty. It's not an option. <laughs> you have your duty to be hopeful and to try to do things that, that make hope more hopeful. 
Jim, if you could get into a time machine and beam back to 1964 or, you know, whenever it was that you began your journey as an activist, what advice would you give to young Jim? Well, I'd say my, my first troublesome action <laughs> was in 1961 when I took part in picketing the White House, not the White House, the CIA headquarters, one of the CIA buildings in Washington, DC, wasn't actually the headquarters. I got into a lot of trouble. I was in the Navy, I was not in uniform, but I was in the Navy and the Navy had somehow found out that I was one of the people taking part in this small thing. So I've been doing troublesome things from time to time ever since. Not very often, not 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 full time. I'm a real, I describe myself in the in the book that you were talking about as a reluctant activist, but I am still not able to retire from totally totally retire from it. Well, I, you know, it goes back to that theme of Merton's retreat in November 1964, the spiritual roots of protest. If you want to endure and protest, it will protest alone will not keep you going. You need something to keep you from burning out. And that was where I started reading Merton when I was in the Navy, and I started getting in trouble when I was in the Navy, and I think these two things are connected. <laughs> so. The good kind of trouble, though, right? Well, yeah. Of course, I had an example of my parents. They were both doing troublesome things, too. But both my parents were very much involved in, in combating racism. That was probably the most important part of their focus. You know, so I had an example from them. We, I grew up in a mostly black neighborhood. And then there's the black church and the black music and the black spirituals. That was part of my life. That was part of the formation. So I had a spiritual life beginning even before I knew that I had a spiritual life. And my mother occasionally, she, theoretically, she was an atheist, but in practice, she wasn't. And she would occasionally take us, my brother and me, to uh, the Methodist church in town with the church in which she had grown up. And so we, we heard the gospel and we heard, heard it in the context of a minister who, with his wife and family, had taken in two survivors of Nagasaki into their home who had come to the United States for plastic surgery. So we saw a Christian family taking in these war-wounded Adam bomb wounded survivors. And they, they also gave us an idea of what Christianity is all about. Hospitality. Mm. That comment there makes me think of something. Christianity and, and it being hijacked by so many different interests who claim Christianity's X or Y, but not about hospitality. How do you deal, or I mean... Maybe I'm asking for advice because <laughs> it frustrates me to no end to see the name Christianity thrown around and attached to either some kind of culture war or some kind of identity politics or something that seems very aggressive and mean-spirited and anti-Christian. And so I'm kind of curious as to your thoughts about that. Yeah, well, I mean, we tend to turn things into ideologies. And I find in general, I'm ideology avoider and the church is always being threatened with the danger of becoming an ideology some kind of connect the dots sort of thing or you just do this do this do this it's it's it doesn't work that way it's a way it is a way it's a path 
and it sort of unveils itself to you as you take each step is in a step into the dark. And then a little bit of candlelight floods the, the next step that you're trying to take. But you don't know where the trail is going. One of my favorite prayers is Merton's prayer about, Lord, I don't know where I'm going, don't know the path ahead. I only hope that trying to fulfill your will puts me in the right direction, something along those lines. I, probably uh, one of you has it hanging around on the wall somewhere. Yeah, I'm pretty sure all three of us have it. <laughs> I, think, I think Cassidy might be reaching for it right now. Can you read it to us, Cassidy? Yeah, I sure can. My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. Amen. I think that'll get you closer to heaven <laughs> than any, uh, you know, any other book of theology. Well, what's so beautiful about that and why it speaks, I think, to us is, is that it's truly a path of unknowing. And I, I think clear, the problem that you said about ideology is when we think we know and we're pretty certain about it and then we use it as a weapon of some sort or some sort of prop. But to be humble and to, like you said, take a step and to search and to wait it seems to be closer to the way, or is the way. Dorothy Day put great stress on the works of mercy. Uh, well, Jesus puts great stress on the works of mercy. We are not saved because we get past a catechism test or can recite the creed by heart or uh, been to Mass every Sunday or been to a church service every Sunday or have the best collection of Jesus books in the, the whole county. You know, it's, uh, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was naked. I was homeless and you took me in. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison. You came to be with me. I'm leaving one of them out, but you get the idea. And what you do to the least person, you do to me. Now, that's the last judgment. That's, you know, if you want right. to, if Christians are interested in the last judgment, this is what you ought to pay attention to. Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. One of my theology professors, when I was uh, doing my doctoral work, made the comment, like, if you haven't paid attention, this is really the only time that Jesus says, you want to know what you're going to be judged on? Matthew 25. That's it. And just the list that you gave there. I think um, it's it's not bad news. It's not bad news that you, you, you open your door and the ambassadors of God walk through. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and I, I love what you said about the the way and the path of of unknowing and also Jim's reminding us I think of the path and the way of honest prayer I mean talking about God I don't know where I'm going and here's my enemies 
uh, you know, and that's a start. Just that. That That's absolutely beautiful. I, that's going to change the way I think about this. Wake up in the morning. All right. Here are the people I hate. And I'm not sure what I'm doing. Let's get this going. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. And God honors that honesty, right? I think about that story in, is it Mark 8 or Mark 9? When the, the father wanting his son to be healed says, says to Jesus, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. You know, God honored that honesty. Right. I identify very much with that. I'm a believer part time. Yeah. 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 I try to be a believer. I'm, a, I'm, I'm working on being a Christian. I, you know, to, to me, it's an apprenticeship. And I, I'm far, I, I, sometimes people ask, what school did I go to? Well, I actually am a high school dropout. But I, I pretend to be a student at Dorothy Day University. <laughs> I was and remain an undergraduate. <laughs> no, no diploma in sight. <laughs> yeah, correct. Thank you so much. This has been a lovely conversation. This has just been such an utter joy. I mean, especially following you for years and reading all your work and now to actually have a have this conversation in time. I really appreciate your time and your energy and, and all your work. So thank you so much. Well, I've got plenty of time. Yeah, thank you, Jim. We are Encountering Silence. I'm Cassidy Hall. To learn more about me, please visit CassidyHall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. To find out more about my work, visit my website, kevinmichaeljohnson.com. I'm Carl McCollman. My website is carlmccollman.com. Please visit the podcast website at encounteringsilence.com. There you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. By making a purchase through our website, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from amazon.com. Also, to learn more about how you can be a part of our circle of supporters, visit patreon.com slash encountering silence. This way you can share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all too noisy world.